Hey everyone, I hope you're fired up. Today, you'll absorb some killer wisdom from a special guest. I have the pleasure of bringing you Dr. Andrea Little Limbago. She'll share how her upbringing in the social sciences has evolved into a global thought leadership position, now shaping the perspective of high-end tech startups. With Andrea, you'll learn the importance of taking a human-first approach when designing new technologies, how the study of local human culture is an invaluable input to digital leaders, ways to customize your own career trajectory based on your unique interests, and finally, how a well-built professional squad is portable and can advise you for decades to come. You in? All right, let's go. Welcome to the Rising Digital Leaders Show. I am your host, Matthew Doan. Today's organizations are powered by digital capabilities, cloud, data science, cybersecurity, and much more. To be competitive, we must have tech-savvy leaders steering the ships. But these people don't come out of thin air. We must develop them. This show is for the technical experts of the world, those brave souls that feel unheard and lost in the crowd, but know they were born to lead. We need you to rise, to become impactful digital leaders. In these episodes, we help you undergo a self-transformation, developing the mindset and skill set that'll massively enhance your abilities, influence, and career potential. We take a different approach, pulling in lessons from philosophy, psychology, neuroscience, and history to enrich the professional and personal aspects of your life. Thank you for your time please subscribe to the Rising Digital Leaders Show. Now, let's dig in. Welcome to the Rising Digital Leaders Show. My guest in this episode is the extraordinary Andrea Little-Limbago. Andrea, thanks for being here today. No, thanks for, so much for having me. This is exciting. Oh, I'm super <laughs> pumped to talk with you about a special focus. I know something that is really passionate with you. And it's that whole intersection of human and technology. And that can mean a lot of things, but really looking forward to unpacking that with you here today. And one of the things I really like about watching your career and how you spent your time is that you're, you're in a lot of places getting the word out. From a, science, from a scientist standpoint, I really see you as that person that's monitoring and guiding and shaping how people should view how technology professionals should be out there in the world and how they should be evolving their careers. You've done that from the cybersecurity angle, the privacy angle, you're in supply chain. Now there's a lot of ways that you're bringing the scientific methodology and observations to this. So I'm excited to bring your perspective to our audience here today. So to get us moving, I have one question that I like to ask out of the beginning, and that is, what does it take for technology experts to rise into the leadership realm? Yeah, no, that's a great question. It's one of those things that I, I, I see, you know, a lot of my, my colleagues and friends and peers uh, struggle with a, a fair amount because there isn't, you know, there's not necessarily that that set track like we've seen in other, in, you know, in other roles, you know, sales, marketing, and so forth. There's kind of a fairly well-established organizational tracks that they know of. Um, and on the technology side, it kind of varies a fair amount, even within organizations and certainly across organizations. And so one of the first things, I mean, for sure, is, you know, that they want to do that, Um you know, and that, you know, the leadership role is not for everyone. And I think that's 100% okay. But for those that do want to, you know, it, it becomes, you know, it's much harder. You know, it's, it's easier to say, said than done to say, oh, yeah, I'd like to rise up and go through this, 
you know, this career track when there's, you know, it's so, you know, almost nebulous on what the different options are. So a couple of different things I'd recommend. One is, you know, really decide if that's what's for you. And if it is, there becomes a, a whole your range of skill sets that start being required as well. One is absolutely understanding the technical side, but then a lot of it comes into, you know, the communication aspect of it, uh, working with other teams. And so, you know, if you're an engineer working, you know, hardcore developing on the back end of something, you know, even there, you're going to be working across various kinds of engineering teams with product, um, and then with other kinds of leadership. And so being able to talk to those adjacent group communities within your organization becomes really, really essential. And to do that well, you also need to be able to understand their perspective. I think that's one of those things that, you know, for those of us that you know, spent a lot of time, you know, perhaps early in our careers, almost working solo, doing, you know, research, coding, whatnot, um, sort of, you know, spending more time with our computer than with other people, um, you, you may have missed out on some of those skill sets, but really, it becomes really, really important to see the perspective of other people because that enables the communication and helps you understand where they're coming from when they either don't understand something or when they have questions about things that very often you know, questions from other people may, may seem like they're trying to attack you and how you did something was actually not that they're just trying to figure out what you're talking about. And so there are just so many areas where communication, um, where communication becomes so essential. And so I, I, you know, there's, there's those, that aspect of it, but then really just starting to think about where you'd want to go, um, looking at where that desired end state may be. And it doesn't have to be, you know, 50 years down the road, because I honestly think that becomes too hard to see. And I, I'd also would argue that the way that all of our organizations are shifting right now, that what you imagine 50 years from now, that role may not even exist <laughs> at that point. And that's what I tell a lot of folks, that, like, my role that I have right now didn't exist, you know, five, 10 years ago. Um, but at the same time, it's still important to sort of see where those next steps are and where you want to go so you can start building a plan to get there. Great points. It actually makes me think of a story I tell to a lot of people is about thinking about your glide path. And, and you can't think in long-term increments so much and make that super clear. It's good to have a North Star. But if you think about five years and you try to angle yourself on a course and take the small steps that are directionally correct and useful to that glide path, and then eventually you start shaping an opportunity set that is good for you and uniquely yours. And like you, who essentially created the chief social scientist role, which I love. I mean, that's a great example on how you took your unique skills and interests, you figured out a need out in the world, and you shaped a role and a discipline around it. Yeah, trying. Still, uh, you know, it's one of those things that's interesting. You know, in cybersecurity, when I first started, yeah, the question I got all the time was, what's a social scientist doing in cybersecurity? And I got that everywhere I went. I don't get that question anymore which is actually, to me, is like, you know, it's a little bit rewarding. And I'm not alone either. And I, I, when I go to these conferences now, I can actually, I know the other, there's still only a handful of us, um, but we're growing. Uh, but there are more and more that are in the field. And they're, you know, and whereas before also, you know, they may have been, you know, under some of like, almost like closet social scientists, they actually now can be talking to everyone. They don't have to actually hide that that's their background. Because it was viewed as detrimental for a while. Yeah. They, they, oh, you're not technical then. Yeah, um, Totally. Makes sense. On that note, could you unpack a little bit on what your origin story is? Help us understand on how you got to this point, what your interests are today? Yeah, for sure. I mean, and that's what, you know, it's, it's a very circuitous path. I think that that's one of the things that I I'll see when I'm talking, especially when I talk to you know, college students, you know, for me, it, it wasn't a direct line. And I actually thought, you know, when I was going through school, I thought it would be. Uh, turns out it wasn't. <laughs> and it still isn't. Um, but I, you know, I started off, I uh, love international relations, national security. And so I, I got a PhD in political science with a focus on international relations. Uh, but a core component of that was doing uh, quantitative analyses with it. 
And so I also loved math. Um, and so throughout my PhD program, I went and did a bunch of different summer programs and you know other coursework on statistics and modeling and formal modeling. And so that became a core part of it. And so that turned out to be sort of my my gateway into the broader tech community was it was the the data knowledge. Um, and so from academia, I taught briefly and then went into the Department of Defense and led a team uh, and helped grow a team of computational social scientists working on a range of national security issues for quite some time. Um, but then with that, you know, with everything, you know, unintended things happen. And you know, where I was in the government turned out to get moved under a different organization and they did some um, reductions in size, reductions in force. Uh, and you know, my team was part of that. And so from there, got basically that was the push that uh, led me into doing some uh, about three or four different startups over the last decade. And so on the one hand, you know, I thought I was going to be in academia forever. That changed. I thought I was going to be in government forever. That changed. Um, now I'm going down the startup track. And I imagine at some point I could go back to either one of those. I don't know. But I've been doing cybersecurity startups uh, really for the last decade. Uh, was at Endgame for about five years. was the longest one. That's endpoint detection. And from there, really, when I started there, that's when a lot of the emphasis on cybersecurity started to start. It was, you know, I joined right before the Sony attack. And I kind of look at the Sony attack as sort of like the awakening, at least amongst the, the public, that cybersecurity was an issue. It had been an issue for quite some time before that, but you know, it made headlines um, with the Sony attack. And from there, you know, I did a lot as far as you know, sort of the writing and community work to, to link up the national security aspect, the geopolitical aspect, but also the human aspect, because cybersecurity still is stuck with the notion that humans are the weakest link. And you know, it's true, you know, humans are the ones that click that phishing link and so forth. But at the end of the day, if the technology doesn't work you know, with humans in it, you know, it doesn't work, right? I mean, like, and it's, um, you know, a colleague who basically, who has said that you know, humans are a feature, not a bug. And that that's you know, one of my favorite sayings for that, because it's true, like, if the technology is not working for how humans behave, you know, that's a, that's a technology flaw, not a human flaw. And so we're not going to, we're not going to change human behavior. We need the tech to work for humans. And so really pushing out, you know, a lot of sort of trying to change that paradigm uh, a fair amount, you know, and at the same time, trying to switch the paradigm away from, you know, technology is being you know, completely, completely agnostic to it being, you know, there's dual use at the end of the day. It can be used for good and for bad. Um, and so I understand that aspect of it as well. I'm trying to help build in the guardrails to push it towards doing all the phenomenal things technology can do and I'll put some limitations on uh, the overreach and abuse. And so yeah. that led me over to you know, cybersecurity and then, you know, adjacently now into supply chain risk, which is a really big, you know, it's, you know, cybersecurity is a huge component of supply chain risk but also integrates a lot of the, the globalization and international trade and industrial policy love. Sort of almost taking me back to my roots of what I studied uh, in grad school and did some of the work in the DOD. So somewhat coming full circle or actually kind of aggregating everything that I've done over the last you know, couple of decades and, and pulling it all together into one position now. So that's been a lot of fun. Yeah. And you're probably operating from a place where very few people have that set of experiences and can speak in, in a way that you can connect the dots that others can't. And that's a very valuable set of uh, insights that you can provide to kickstart movement. I know you've been focused a lot in supply chain, for example, right now, and you can provide a lens as far as geopolitics, globalization, and the technical elements that are very useful to people that many people can't speak to. So that's wonderful. One of the things I'd like to, to look at with you is you talk about social science as being a, a core of what you bring to the world. Can you talk a little bit about what social science means to you and then how leaders can start to apply it? Yeah, sure. And so for me, you know, social science really, it's a study of, of humans, human behavior, 
um, but not just you know, as individuals, but groups, communities, the, their norms, their behaviors, um, relationships. And so for some reason, you know, that, on the one hand, that sounds, you know, it's an oversimplification and there are different disciplines underneath one that focus on different things. Um, but there are a lot of different ways, you know, either from economic models to what you see in some of the politics, um, really can help inform just so, like, can provide much more science and rigor to decision-making uh, versus the kind of just assume, like, kind of like just guessing as you go. <laughs> and I think that, you know, because, you know, it's not considered, a, you know, the hard sciences where everyone thinks, you know, it's, it's fairly well, you know, established what some of the, the core, um, you know, paradigms are and findings and so forth. You know, social science still is evolving and it, it is fuzzier because it's much harder to say if X than Y in the social sciences. Uh, that said, what you can do is give a whole much greater, you know, granularity and uh, data-driven analyses behind some of your thoughts as far as, you know, what, what might be the best organizational structure? Or even questions like right now, companies are thinking about the remote work versus the in-person work in the office. Like that's one of the big debates going on right now. Social science can actually help inform those decisions by thinking about, you know, how can you optimize both those human, the in-person human real, you know, interactions plus the benefits other people have gotten from, um, from being at home. So this is time you spent with friends and family uh, and not sitting in a car for two hours a day, which is something I, I certainly don't miss doing that part of it. But it can help inform like those, those business decisions that are ongoing right now um, on top of, you know, tons of research as far as, uh, you know, burnout and mental health that's going on for organizations, like actually putting the science behind it versus just, you know, going with a gut reaction. And, you know, way too often when it comes to, you know, the pe like people decisions, you know, it, it, there isn't a science behind it. And, I, and there should be more of that. Um, doesn't necessarily have to mean that, you know, it has to be the, you know, drive that decision, but should be a con contribution to the decision making process. One of the most useful things I've done is kind of look into the field of cultural anthropology and help organizations start to pick apart what their culture is and then design a better culture that they all want to have. And most people assume that's something that can't really be altered. And also, it's also assumed that it's inherited from some bigger organization. So say you're in a technology group, like an analytics team, and you're a part of some big monstrous corporation, and you just are a part of that culture, and it is what it is, and you have to deal with it. But there's an element, I think, of microculture, where you can craft something more useful to you. And if you have leaders that are willing to take that upon themselves, to carve out a space, a set of behaviors... Uh, a set of emotions that you want everyone to feel, you can start tangibly working towards that. So I've personally seen a lot of value in bringing social science, whether that's psychology or anthropology and start applying it. But it's something that just feels, I think, scary for a lot of people because they never grew up with it. Yeah, no, I think it's absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's completely foreign. Um, it doesn't actually go in the, it doesn't go in the business school training. It doesn't go in, if you're a technologist, it doesn't go in the technology training. Um, it kind of is in, is in that gap. I mean, it absolutely is. I mean, when, when you think about culture and culture as being a, such a big driver of how, whether organizations succeed or not, there is so much literature <laughs> and findings from so many different social sciences on that. And this is like some of the stuff that I, I had worked on earlier was, you see like the role of social, like a, of visual cues, right? Like when you go into a, a company and certain posters are, you know, words or whatnot is on, you know, they're all around the walls, that inherently makes it comfortable for some people and could potentially be offsetting for others. Those are the kind of things that really hadn't been integrated that much um, and that impacts so many different aspects and then even like in the hiring process looking at you know, who's interviewing whom looking at um, you know just the way like what uh, what kind of like social activities are done 
Um, all that kind of stuff plays a role in the culture. And there's so much work that's out there that you can, that business leaders can learn from uh, and apply some of those insights to make sure that, you know, that they're achieving the kind of culture that they want to achieve. Makes sense. So if you think a little bit about our audience here, you've got the young, ambitious, technical professional, they have big dreams for themselves. What are some tactical tips, maybe one or two that would be useful on how to apply social science to their world and really move towards that leadership area? Yeah, you know, one of them, I mean, it's almost probably super intuitive, but like the network effects, um, you know, this is something that I hadn't thought about as much, you know, when I was growing up, but so there's a whole, there's social network analysis, it really looks at how, you know, core nodes can help distribute, like, distribute everything from ideas to, you know, trade flows to whatnot. Um, you know, it's been applied from everything to terrorist groups to, you know, organizational uh, communication flows. As a, as a technology, like, it started in... And this should actually become, it should be somewhat more intuitive for technologists who probably have learned some sort of graph theory, perhaps, um, or have worked in that area. But just thinking about how, you, how you're networking and thinking about it in that way, because it can help expand your reach and how you're networking. So if you're networking and you're on an isolated area where, you know, you're basically networking with a lot of people in one area, but they're not necessarily connected to any other group that you actually, that you want to have a bigger influence on, then, that, then you're not going to have that influence. But if there are connections there, look at what who's connect, who can help you connect to that other group. Leverage that relationship to then help spread your influence into that area. And so there, there are a lot of you know thinking when it's almost thinking more scientifically about how you're networking uh, because it does matter. And, and it's not doing it in a way that's you know, all self you know uh, fulfilling or benefiting and, and so forth. Like make it make it worthwhile for both of you, right? And that that's again where some of the social science comes into play. There's got to be some sort of reciprocation <laughs> that goes along with it. It can't just be you asking for things from someone else. And so thinking about what, what value you can provide to the other person to help get you into those various networks um, and make sure it's reciprocal. It helps you both grow a lot. Um, I think that you know, is one of, the, one of the biggest ways. And then, you know, not necessarily you know, specific to social sciences, but just focus on like storytelling, you know, especially I, I focus on this much more so on the data realm, but make sure as you're t- doing your data analysis, make sure you're, it tells a story. I, I've worked just a, a lot um, across the, t- you know, various uh, jobs with folks that are very, very, like just extremely smart technically, but can't really tell that story for why that technology matters or why their findings matter or why that project they just did matters. And so really being able to tell that become, you know, a good storyteller really goes a long way. Yeah, I think that's great. If you look to some of the experts out there like Carmine Gallo and others that have extracted the, the ways that the Steve Jobs and the TED performers of the world um, really bring their stories to life. I think that's a good methodology. But then also, I think a stumbling block I've seen for many people is they tell generic stories. They don't understand the values or the strategic goals that their organization has, essentially the local context. And until they have that, their story of, of great techno, technological progress yeah. or whatever it might be just doesn't match up. So if you find a way to actually understand the organization quite intimately through conversation and studying what it's trying to do, then you can be really impressive in showing how your insights pair to where the organization is trying to go overall. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it, you have to be a story te- good storyteller and make sure it's relevant to your audience. And that would be the that would be the next step, because that's the other aspect that um, when you're depending on what audience you're speaking to, it's going to be you, got, you need to be framing it differently. If you're speaking at a, at a to a purely technical audience, that presentation is going to be very different than if you're speaking to uh, a leadership audience, which is very different to an academic audience, which may be technical, but you still have to how you actually have to balance all the different aspects of your presentation and or what or your writing, uh, all that 
varies quite a bit depending on who your audience is. So it is, yes, yeah, so that's another know your audience <laughs> and make sure it's relevant for them and communicate it in a way that they can consume it. In making progress like this, can you think of any roadblocks that technical professionals are facing facing and trying to attempt these feats of yeah. progress? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, one, I think it's just the resources. I mean, I, I still feel like so much of it isn't targeted towards the technical professionals. Um, and I do think there's, you know, on the one hand, there, there's a, you know, sort of a, a balance that's out there that currently, you know, whether it's perceived, or, you know, whether it's reality or not, that is perception that you do have to give up your technical skills to go up the leadership track. And sometimes that's true, but it isn't always true. And so, you know, being able to look around different organizations. So as you're starting to think about moving up the leadership track, you know, making sure that you understand what, you know, how much of your technical skills you want to maintain and stay on top of, and then how, whether you can use those still. Um, but even just like knowing, like having the visibility into some of that, you know, it's not always there. And I think just it gets back to the career tracks are just transforming a fair amount. I mean, the, just with the, you know, the notion that every company is a technology company now, you know, that what that means is on the one hand, so all companies are really built on you know, technologies, whether it's just for business processes and communication or they actually have a, a product, there's technology in there, but how they're leveraging their technologists varies a lot. And so the, in the career tracks still do vary a lot. Um, and I saw it especially with data science where companies knew, like they, they knew they needed a data scientist, but they weren't, weren't really sure why. It's just that they, you know, they saw, you know, they saw the latest HBR saying that you know, it's the sexiest job of the 21st century. And so they all, so everyone wanted one, but they didn't know what to do with them. And so what happened was they had to hire one, have no idea what to do with them. And you know, the person would eventually leave. And so there were so many errors that I think that were made and, and still are a bit um, by companies because they know they need, you know, a front end developer or back end developer, cloud architect, whatnot. Um, but they, they don't always know how they're going to use it. And so for what those that are you know, rising technologists can, can think about is, you know, look at how their organization is structured as they're looking at new jobs or even where they are currently. And if they want to stay within the organization, but they don't see their career track, start thinking about what that career track should look like and try and make that work within. If they're, if they're in an organization that does, you know, if there's a gap there, you know, try and provide the opportunity to fill that. So just because it doesn't exist doesn't mean it can't exist. Yeah, I think that's really key. A lot of people sit on their laurels and wait for opportunities to rise up or whether they just advance on a track that they assume they should be promoted on and they wait for it to happen as a passive endeavor and, and they don't get to where they want to be. And the years add up and the frustration adds up. And ultimately, I've seen a lot of people just get burned out and want to try something different altogether. And they have all this great talent and ambition, yet they're waiting on uh, whether it's there's corporate structures or career paths to unfold, and they're not sensing opportunity, shaping their own path forward, maybe actually uh, presenting a new role that should be created to leadership so that they can create it for themselves and grow yep. into it and make something different within the organization take place. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. When we talk about leadership, there's a lot of different guides, endless books, um, when you think about the guidance you've seen out there, maybe some myths that need to be busted, do any come to life for you? Yeah, I mean, there are a couple. And I'll say on the one hand, I, I'm not probably as well-versed as I should be in all the various leadership books that are out there. But the ones that um, kind of come to mind, um, and this is hopefully resonates with you with, with more of the, the tech audience, you don't have to be an extrovert to be a leader. And that's one that you know, seems to be, we've seen so many different studies on that. Um, and almost to the point of the, the also the notion of, you know, oh, if you just lean in, you'll, you'll, you'll rise up. Like, 
I, I, I disagree with that as well. I mean, there's some components to it as far as like what you're talking about, like as far as grabbing your opportunities, but uh, there are, you know, there are hurdles that especially people from underrepresented groups, you know, come in contact with that leaning in alone isn't, isn't enough. So it, it's not just on them. Um, but I do think that, you know, between that and, you know, a place for, there's a place for introverts. Absolutely. And I, I feel like that gets lost a lot. Um, so you don't have to be an extrovert to be a leader. Um, you know, I'm certainly not, I think across cybersecurity, especially, uh, a lot of us are, <laughs> are introverts. And on the one hand, it's, it's actually kind of funny seeing everyone talk about it now. Like, yeah, at first with COVID, it was, it was nice that you didn't have to go to all the different, you know, conferences, but now it's like, we all just can't wait to see each other again. So, um, there, there is a, a balance there. So, you know, that aspect of it, uh, you know, and leaving, you know, the, the sort of the, the people component to HR, you know, I see that written about here and there. And I, and I I think that's a problem as well. Um, you know, a lot of leadership, you know, when you think about like the people processes and technology, leaders should be able to have some insight and, and help shape across all of those. And so that doesn't always happen. And that's actually, and it's really hard. I'm not, I'd argue, it, it's really hard to have some insights into some of that. Um, those are, yeah, those are a couple. I guess one other one that does kind of drive me down is, is the one that you, do, you know, don't, don't bring, bring me problems, only bring me solutions. And I, and I hear that one a lot too. On the one hand, I get it because you do like so much easier, like for my life as a leader, if everyone just brings me solutions, but that means you're not going to get the problem. And this is again, some lessons from cybersecurity. Well, what happens with that is that if someone clicked a link and they think they shouldn't have at the end of the day, they're not going to tell anyone because <laughs> like, oh, they're like, oh, I messed up. So I'm not, I'm just not going to tell anyone. I hope no one knows. When for the organization, it's actually better off if they go straight to their security folks and say, look, I think I made a mistake. Um, it looked legit. Here you go. Like, bringing problems sometimes actually can really help strengthen the organization overall because otherwise it goes undiscovered. And so I, I just feel like it's not black and white. Absolutely want solutions. Please bring solutions. If there are problems, people need, like leaders need to know about them. Don't, don't hide that. <laughs> Great points. The, the first couple particularly resonate with me around mm -hmm. extrovert versus introvert, something I've seen successful actually got from a book called The Alter Ego Effect by Todd Herman, which is based on the environment that you're in. Think about someone that you know to be successful. Maybe it's the celebrities. Maybe they don't even, they're not alive anymore, <laughs> but they know they're someone that would act appropriately and they would do something impressive and to actually study them and then turn on that alter ego when you walk into that room, <laughs> whether it's giving a presentation, having to give feedback, having to be in front of a new audience and do something that's scary to you, just thinking about turning on alter egos and yep. you can do even signaling things like wearing something or doing a prep, like breathing exercise before you walk into it. That's one thing. And then the second piece you talked about leaving things to HR, the more I've seen organizations uh, that are successful and how they are successful is these microcultures. I'll bring that concept back again. Uh, is where you actually have local groups that create such harmony and, and collaboration and, and great ways of working that they don't want to leave. They stay together. And when, say, the leader leaves that company, that whole group follows them because they created such a beautiful structure and yep. set of dynamics that everyone wants to stay with that because it's so fulfilling to them. Yeah. And I would say, and it, which is important, though, the, the opposite is also true. That there's a little like there's just a little bit of poison that's not addressed within some of these microcultures, like that can spread fast. And so that's why it's also, if you're not getting that right, it can be really, really detrimental. It's, and it's hard work to build up a really solid culture like you were talking about, but it, the benefits are, are, are endless. Like you're saying, like you basically ended up developing a whole group of people. Um, and that's why you do see people working, 
going from company to company <laughs> together because they, they've, they've done the hard work of, of creating that, that microcosm of that culture. It's really, it's hard to do, but when you, when you can, but it's absolutely worthwhile and, and should be a priority because um, it pays off you know, for everyone. Absolutely. A few rapid fire questions okay. for you. Would you mind? Go for it. All right. What's one book that you've gifted or recommended the most and why? Yeah, so this is kind of a hard question because for me, I've got people from different areas of my life that I would do something different. But I think the one that might cross over um, is from the other side of the world. It's by Amira Abrigo-Rosley. She does a really good job highlighting, you know, everyone's like, oh, the next Steve Jobs coming in from Silicon Valley. She went around the world and found just phenomenal entrepreneurs in Turkey and Nigeria, you know, really, you know, across the globe and not necessarily in these tech hubs or hotspots and showing just amazing like inno- innovation ingenuity um, even in, on very minimal resources and so I think it, one it's just a good inspirational book it's a good leadership book because you do find out how these people are dealing under very hard circumstances on how to grow and innovate um, and then it's just it's really just a nice global perspective on just the way the world is shifting so it kind of hits the different areas that I, that I like on it. and Elmira does a just a phenomenal job um, telling those stories in a way that is uh, accessible, but also impactful. Yeah, sounds very helpful. Thank you. Next piece then, which three people have most influenced your life and why? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, it's hard not to see your family. And so, and I guess I could separate them all, but then that, that takes up all, you know, the group. but my parents for sure growing up, you know, my immediate family now, um, you know, just as far as having that, you know, the support and the you know, motivation to push ahead. I think especially you know, growing up with my parents, you know, they pushed me to play a lot of sports and do a lot when women were doing those things, but not as much as they are now. Um, so, and sort of learning a lot of sort of leadership and uh, those kind of, uh, of objectives. Um, then now, I mean, gosh, kids, kids teach you patience like nothing else. <laughs> so that's, that's been super helpful. Um, but I said, you know, I'm professionally my advisor in grad school, probably the, the biggest one. He was amazing. Um, grad school is really hard, which I think a lot gets often overlooked. Like it's ridiculously hard and it's, it can, it can kill you. Like I've been in meetings now where afterwards people are like, oh, that was, that was a really hard, you know, bunch of questions you just got from them. like that was nothing like I made it through grad school and my doctoral defense like I can hit I, general officers can't throw anything at me now like this like it's nothing compared to that and he just you know he he kind of helped keep me going through he, he had he had the confidence that I could do it when I didn't and I think that was that that was super helpful and you know and we still stay in contact now but I mean just having that your advisor really does make or break I mean for people who are thinking about grad school if, if you don't have a good advisor it it's really, really hard. I mean, it's hard anyway. It makes it close to impossible if you don't have that connection. So that, that was, yeah, he, he for sure gave me the confidence to make it through. Thanks for sharing that. Sounds a great set of people in your life to get you where you are today. <laughs> if you were starting your career now in 2021, what advice would you give yourself? Yeah. And this, you know, I you know, brought up networking earlier and part of it, if this can make, perhaps this all kind of pulls the thread together. I am a complete introvert. And I, I did not talk to people. I like even in, in grad school, um, you know, I kind of did my heads down, stay, stayed in the library, did what needed to be done, really didn't network a ton. I'd go to conferences, go 10 things, not talk to anyone, <laughs> and then leave. Uh, what I've realized just you know, how important is building that network. It's great both for your career. I mean, I, I've 
move from job to job, very much so through you know, colleagues or people I'd worked with and who are who they knew. That really is how I've transitioned through most of my jobs. But it also, has, so there's another side effect that I think gets overlooked, like especially over this last year, um, where it has been hard being so you know, so isolated, is that having you know my network, especially my my professional network, you know, almost like my squad of people that I can lean on when I'm hitting some rough times professionally. They have been so like it, it, you know, it's just been nice being able to call up someone and be like, oh, it's been a bad day. Here's what's going on, or or oh, I've got this problem. I can't figure out how to solve this one problem. Like, what do you have any thoughts on it? Like having that. Being able to lean on people within a professional network that are, you know, they're, they're, they're your friends, but also your colleagues is huge. Like that, that is real. Like if you think about like resiliency, like I think having that, having some sort of squad and outside of your own office, of your own uh, place of employment is really, really important because it, it's just it's a good place to brainstorm, throw ideas around um, and to see for other folks who kind of, they, they know what you're going through. So I think that's, it also helps in, in that regard. So it's, Good professionally, it's good personally. Um, yeah, it's, it's building up a community is really if you think about it that way versus just oh, I got a network just to you know it, ignore the like however many people you have on you're connected to on LinkedIn. Make sure they're real connections, not you know ones that you just say you're connected to and don't have, know anything about them. Yeah, great point. I've also seen to your point too many people leave organizations and basically say goodbye to everyone, even oh, if they yeah. developed meaningful relationships. Yeah. And, and those are real bonds and friendships. And you know what? If you reach out to someone that you worked with two years ago that there was a tight bond, you will change their day, potentially their life, by reaching back out to them and checking in with them even once a month or something yep. to that effect. I mean, you're going to open up lots of opportunities for yourself. But that fulfillment you get personally and being able to stay connected. And then on the other side, too, those people feel like their lives are improved, too. So just find those people in your life and make sure that those five or 10 folks, your professional squad are just something that's always present for yourself. Right. Yeah, no, it is. And it's one of those things like every now and then just like getting the quick text, like a little, you don't have to have a reason. It's like, just checking in. How are things like that is so nice getting that <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and, you know, reciprocate as well. So yeah, it, it, it just has been essential. Great points. A couple questions to wrap us up here today, yep. Andrea. One that we like to always ask is how do you rise each day? <laughs> Yeah, it's, um, you know, some days are harder than others, right? And I think that one is like admitting it's there are going to be some bad days. And those, you know, if it's because you got to pay the bills, that's a perfectly acceptable reason. Um, ideally, you can find something that's more than that. And, you know, for me, it's, you know, just sort of the excitement of, of what I'm working on. Um, you know, I, I do think, especially if these are, you know, talking about rising technologists, like this is such an influential area for so many reasons, like just the role of technology in our society is going to be the determining factor on our civil rights, our freedoms, democracy, you know, whether it's a surveillance state versus, you know, having, you know, internet freedoms, like that all comes back down to technolo technologists. And so what we're doing every day is so, so important. We, we cannot disconnect technology from society. And so for me, rising every day, like just knowing, you know, I'm not going to shave, I'm not going to solve it by, by any stretch of the imagination, but if I can just do my little bit and get other folks as well, you know, thinking about this and looking at what solutions we can have, you know, it's really like there's, you know, it's one of the most impactful kind of careers that you can have. I mean, it's so just being able to have that impact and hopefully shaping it so we can focus on your greater economic security, uh, national security, individual freedoms and so forth, like all, all that we're doing, even if that's not necessarily the area you're working on, 
you are by the way that you're, you're looking at technology and securing it or making something more efficient or enabling some sort of, you know, economic flows that currently weren't there. So there's a broad range of ways that tech impacts society. And so that, that's kind of how, that's what motivates me. I think when I think about, you know, starting work every day. Yeah. I can see how that's usually energizing (laughs) solving world problems, frankly. (laughs) That's huge. Where can people find you online and connect with Uh, you more? Yeah, and then you know that's why I sh- and I should have a better online presence. Uh, you know, Twitter Lombago A is the handle. Yeah, there or LinkedIn. That's really where I, I post most of my things. And then, you know, I haven't done a good job putting everything in once. I do have one place where I've put some of my writing and my videos, um, but honestly, probably just googling is is the easier way to find some of those. Um, I need to work on my own marketing. No <laughs> worries. Hey, I, I can attest from the content you put out there, whether it's through think tanks and conferences, articles, it's game-changing stuff. I wanted to thank you for all that you're putting into it. It's huge. It's making a difference. It's doing the bit by bit. So, Andrea, I just wanted to wrap us up today. I really love uh, the big picture view you take. You take a lot of different disciplines from social science and, and geopolitics and globalization and tech and you fuse this over time to create your own pathway. And you're starting to create a lot of waves and impact in the world and doing your part bit by bit. And I know it's a lot to do it from uh, a single person point of view, but you're putting world, putting information out there into the world that's going to make a difference. And it is making a difference right now. I can feel it. I know others are too. Thank you for all that you're doing. It's a model for a lot of people, I think, in the digital world on how they can actually take their unique experiences. Oh, well, thank you so much. That's a... Uh... Awfully kind of you. Appreciate yeah, it. I mean it from the bottom of my heart <laughs> in the years that we've been working together and interacting. I hope that we can keep this relationship alive over time. Maybe do one of these again sometime. Appreciate your time here today, Andrea. Yeah, no, thanks so much. It's been fun. This is your host, Matthew Doan. Thank you for listening to the Rising Digital Leaders Show. Again, my mission is to help you elevate your career as a digital leader and live a thriving life. I hope this episode sparks new thinking and helps you take meaningful action in your world. If you enjoyed the experience, I'd be so grateful if you subscribed and left a five-star review. That's it for now. Until next time, my friends, stay virtuous.